Hello, everyone. Welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads, or as in today's case, waters that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. Delmarva is an area that is on the east coast of the United States in the mid-Atlantic region. It encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the west of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the northeast of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. The incident that I will be covering today actually brings back a lot of memories of a place that I'd love to visit, um, Deal Island, Maryland. I did date someone from there for a while, and, you know, I was pretty close to his mother and still spent, you know, a lot of enjoyable evenings. Um, We'd have Sunday dinner at um, his parents' house and, you know, it was just surrounded by water, hence Deal Island. But it's very active in the fact that a lot of commercial watermen do work out of Deal Island. Um, And my ex-boyfriend's family was also um, a family of watermen. So, you know, again, it just kind of takes me back to Deal Island and in specific, um, one day that I spent out on the water on their fishing boat. And I will talk just very briefly about that in a moment. I do just want to go over a couple of things first. First is we actually hit over 5,000 downloads um, a couple of episodes ago, but Um, We're now up to around 5,200 listens, so thank you all very much. I also did see there are a couple new subscribers, so I do appreciate that. If, you know, you do think that any of your friends or family may like this podcast, um, please share it with them. And also, if you either listen to your podcasts on an app or if you're on YouTube and you're able to like or subscribe or leave feedback, what that does is any engagement helps, you know, improve the algorithm and, you know, the favor of the podcast. So if someone's searching for, you know, different keywords, it will come up earlier in the search and that will just, you know, help the podcast grow. All of the sources that I've used for today's episode will be linked in the description notes of the episode. As this did take place in 1939, there will be some of the newspapers that are actually on an archived pay site. So, you know, if you don't have access to that, fortunately, there were some articles that referenced back to those um, 1939 articles. So everything will be covered in the sources that are immediately available in a Google search. Um, But I did also use the contemporary newspapers of the time of the event to verify some things. There were some inconsistencies with some of the sources in the Google search, um, such as the actual proper name of one of the ships that I'll be talking about, as well as which crew members were on what ship. Um, So I'm not going to put that link in um, in the notes as I ended up disregarding that because I went through a number of other sources and, you know, they, they all corroborated each other. But if you do search for this incident, then, you know, if you see one that has a little bit of different information, that's the one 
um, that I've disregarded as a source. So as some of the sites that I use are pay sites, um, I do have, if anybody would like to support the podcast, um, I'll, I do have a PayPal and buy me a coffee account linked. And finally, um, as with pretty much all of my episodes, there may be um, talk or discussion about some things that can be upsetting to others. Um, there will be discussions of death, violence, um, tragedies, and pretty much all of the episodes that I do, except for you know, maybe one or two here and there that kind of you know, aren't as heavy as some of the other topics that I cover. Um, I use those sometimes just as, you know, a way, again, to lighten up the content, especially if we've had a heavy um, topic. But I haven't done one of those in a while, so that's an idea I might look at doing um, within the next couple of episodes. But with that being said, let's get into today's episode that has been described as the Skipjack Tragedy of 1939. Now, you may be asking, what is a skipjack? Or you may think of different types of fish like a skipjack tuna. And in researching um, the episode and um, even the meaning of the word, I did find in one place that a skipjack has come from an old term that means inexpensive but useful, basically. So that can be used, I guess, in, um, in some fish that are labeled as skipjack. Maybe they're plentiful or easy to catch, um, but there is something like a skipjack tuna and I believe a skipjack mackerel. So, you know, a few different types of fish carry that name as well. But in this tragedy, it will actually be referring to a type of ship. And these ships were used and still are used, but in very small numbers now. In a lot of the fishing um you know, the fishing families, the commercial watermen in the area, and can be used all year round. What makes these ships unique, especially in today's age, is that these are sailing ships. There's usually just the one mast that has two different sails. One sail is much bigger than the other, and that is the main sail. They are often used as dredges for oysters in the winter, and dredging is, for lack of a better term, kind of scooping up and filtering to get the oysters. So while that is an efficient way to get to the oysters, it can also at times cause damage to the water environment. The skipjack itself may also be followed by another smaller boat called either a yawl, that's Y-A-W-L, or push boat. And what this basically is, is a small boat that has an engine in it. Skipjacks used wind to help propel them. So if there wasn't a wind, then what would be used was this small boat to push the skipjack along. At one point in time, though, when oyster dredging began with people using these push boats, then the population of the oysters started to go down. So there were limitations then that um, the oystermen had to follow when using these push boats. They were only allowed then to push the skipjack out and help push it in to get to the oyster beds. But 
and this seemed kind of counterproductive to me, but then they allowed the boats to be used, the push boats to be used two days of the week, a Monday and Tuesday, because, you know, the catch of oysters was really low. So it it kind of didn't make sense to me that they eased those restri- restrictions and let the push boat work on those two days to dredge oysters if you're trying to keep the population up for future harvesting. But they did go ahead and ease the the limitations that they had. And then at some point in time, it switched from Monday to Tuesday to the watermen could choose any day that they wanted, any two days that they wanted. And the number of skipjacks have slowly been decreasing in number, which, you know, in today's age where everything is just so more technologically and mechanically advanced than, you know, even just 10 years ago, as, you know, all of these things keep improving and getting less expensive to maintain and repair these older ships is in a lot of cases getting less and less practical. In 1985, the Skipjack was named the State Boat of Maryland. And one of the reasons that this was done was to kind of raise the awareness that this historic ship was almost extinct, basically. So um, in 1957, it was estimated that there were about 80 Skipjacks Um, that were still in use, whereas I believe it was 36 or approximately that amount um, that were still working in 1985. Now there is estimated to be about 30 skipjacks. However, some of them are in disrepair and they may not be able to be repaired at this point. Now on Wikipedia, if you go there, there will be a list of skipjacks that are still in existence. I know there's at least one that's listed that is um, at a museum. And given the total number um, that's listed on Wikipedia, I really don't think that that's really an accurate um, number or accounting because it actually gives all of the names and just the numbers, they're not matching up. So I you know, think that that just needs to be updated on their site. So Also, um, a man named Christopher White wrote a book um, that was published in 2011. It was named Skipjack, the Story of America's Last Sailing Oysterman. And a lot of the articles from modern times, they will um, use that as a source as well. But Mr. White, um, just reading through both what were in the articles as well as a sample of the book was available on Google Books. He spent a lot of time researching the events um, of of what I'm going to cover today, and he interviewed people. So, you know, it was a really great source, which is why, you know, the more modern articles um, sourced from that book. But I did also go back to the 1935 newspaper to confirm and gather information as well. But if I do quote um, anything, odds are it will be coming from his book. Also, there are skipjack races that are still held. um, And with the dwindling numbers of the ships, I don't know really how long that's going to last. 
I was fortunate enough to attend one and we were out on the water in an area where we could observe them. And there were just other activities as well that day. Um, so, you know, you could walk around Deal Island and it was just a very welcoming and open, open environment. And I really enjoyed being out there and watching them. And now knowing more about their history, I appreciate it even more. Um, I'm not really a person who likes to go out on boats a lot, but I really did enjoy that day and spending time out there. Now, I've heard a saying many times, and that's, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. And while I know it's 100% true here on Delmarva, I have a feeling it's probably pretty accurate in you know, a lot of places throughout the world. When someone's out on the water, though, it can take on a entirely different meaning and significance. So a lot of storms can either gain energy or come up very sudden when you're out on the water. And looking at forecasts today, we know that they also can be inaccurate at times, to say the least. But if we think about today and compare it to 1939, the forecasts really were even less reliable. So the watermen, I'm sure, kind of developed, you know, a sense and you know, they would keep an eye out for any changing conditions because especially with sailboats or anything that uses the sail, if a gust of wind comes up, that can really make someone lose control of the boat. One of the men on one of the boats I'll be talking about was 77 years old at the time of this incident. So, you know, with his number of years out on the water, he probably had a very good fine-tuned sense of the atmosphere that was around him. On February 3rd, 1939, when the boats went out on the water that day, they really didn't have a hint that anything really significant was going to happen with the weather. So it sounds like they kind of approached their day as normal. The forecast, um, it was stated in one of the larger newspapers, but actually on the Western shore, um, was you know that they expected maybe a drizzle or rain, um, but nothing really significant. The timing of um, you know February, that month does fall within um, traditionally what would be nor'easter season, even though technically the storm called a nor'easter can happen at any time of the year. They're really more prevalent between September and April. And a nor'easter is a storm that comes in from the northeast, hence the name nor'easter. But they can bring a lot of driving rains and heavy winds and depending on exactly how cold it is, the damage that it can cause can be, you know, pretty big. I've heard sometimes rain, you know, hitting the house and recalling it didn't quite sound right and looking out and it's going more sideways than down. Um, and also then if it's cold, you have that really come down as ice, um, not snow. Usually it's ice. So to me, that's a lot more treacherous as well. And so you have, you know, people with different 
you know, levels of experience going out on the water in these conditions. And so in the summer, they have to, you know, deal with the sun and the heat and the humidity. But in the winter, they have to worry about the cold and the potential of these types of storms popping up um, or coming down into the area, which if it's a really bad one, can be very dangerous. The boats do go out rather early, and as some drizzle um, was expected in the afternoon, you know, a lot of boats by mid-afternoon were already starting to you know, bring up their dredge and get the, the oysters into their bushels, everything that they needed to do um, to bring in their catch. When the crewmen of the Robert L. Taws that was out on the Chesapeake Bay looked up at one point in the mid-afternoon, they looked towards the cliffs that are on the western shore um, in Maryland. So you'll hear me probably sometimes refer to the eastern shore and the western shore, and that's really just in position of where um, the land is in relation to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so it's it's a little different, too, when looking over on the western shore in that they do have some cliffs, and it's completely different than the elevation and any type of formations on Delmarva on the eastern shore um, because I really can't think of any, like, high elevation. We're really pretty flat. So the western shore, though, with those cliffs they could actually work as kind of a windbreak or wind guard, which was very useful to some ships that happened to be close to them that day. Getting back to the crew that was on the Robert L. Taws, when they looked towards those cliffs, they saw clouds getting darker and darker by the moment, and they seemed to be approaching very quickly. They approached so quickly that they didn't have time to get the mainsail down. And when the wind hit the mainsail, it was described as being like hitting a wall. And so when I thought of that, I thought of a parachute, which I know is kind of a different concept in the fact that sails are supposed to gather the wind and propel you forward, whereas the parachute is supposed to um, you know, help slow you down to ease your fall. So even though, you know, the purposes are very different, I still had this vision in mind of watching a TV show or a movie where someone might have been, um, you know, using a parachute, and you can hear that whoosh when, you know, they open the parachute. But it gathers the wind and air, and that's what it uses to function properly. And while the sails on any of these boats out that day were normally very useful on this particular day, well, it would actually act as a catalyst for disaster. The crew on the Taws didn't have time to get their dredges up either. So in addition to really almost losing the control of the boat, because of very high gusts of wind kind of pulling it along, they were also losing control because the dredges were still in the water 
So, you know, both of them were kind of fighting against each other and the crew just really had no way to control the ship. Now, one of the worries in a situation like this would be would it capsize? Fortunately, there were 150 bushels of oysters in the hold of the ship. So those were in the bottom of the skipjack. And that kind of helped weigh the boat to keep it more balanced or more steady. There were 100 bushels of oysters on the top um, of the boat or on the main deck. So these, those did help in some ways. And if they weren't down there, which the 150 bushels were actually from the previous day's catch, then who knows, the boat could have capsized. But very quickly, the storm was over. It was estimated to have only taken about 10 minutes, but those 10 minutes were very harrowing. And thankfully, the men from the Robert L. Taws were able to come back and fish another day. However, the storm was not done with Delmarva. The Choptank River is the largest river in the region. It's actually 71 miles long. So as you can imagine, there can be a lot of fishing or other type of um, commercial fishing industries along the chop tank. And there are a couple of bridges that go across it that I think are beautiful. I like bridges, so um, I just had to go over one a couple of times recently. And, you know, that's actually exciting for me. I like going over them. Well, areas inland or around the river would have felt the force of the storm. It was really those that were on the water that got the worst of it. For one thing, they were unprotected, but also with the other things um, that I've just discussed with the Taws, they had to face those same conditions. And without having you know, radio or instant communication like we have today, there wasn't anything really that could be done to warn them of the intending, or, sorry, impending storm. There was also another weather event that also contributed to those on the chop tank, not really know, knowing or seeing that the storm was about to hit. The chop tank was covered in a very, very thick fog that day. So from the sounds of reading everything, it, it must have been extremely thick more than usual. So as the storm clouds were gathering, they didn't have that same type of notice that those who were out on the bay had. Those on the river could see the sky darkening maybe a little bit, but it was said that the clouds, I'm sorry, the fog, just kind of hid really what was about to happen. When the storm did hit the river, Christopher White, who was the author of the book that I mentioned earlier, he said that the wind was, quote, faster than the waves, end quote. And I had to think about that. And, you know, in relation, there was also the term white caps used. So, you know, I started to think about, you know, watching the water, whether it's on a river or the bay. And if it's windy, it, you know, it kind of forces the water along as the water moves about. There's almost like a white foam that you can see. Um, 
you can maybe think of whitewater rafting, how the water is moving so thick, it creates that froth. It's kind of the same thing with winds that can push the waves forward and cause those white caps to appear. After thinking about what he may have meant, it sounded like he was saying that the wind was going so fast that it was actually going past the waves that it would have normally created. So think, trying to think of an example, um, I had once read about a fighter jet that shot its own self down. And initially, when hearing that, you might think maybe a gun malfunctioned and, you know, it got shot down or something like that. But no, the jet itself actually moved faster than the bullets. So what happened is it fired, you know, I'm not even really sure if you call them bullets, um, you know, but it fired the bullets. But as the plane was actually going quicker than that, it actually um, flew through its own bullets. And I'm kind of wondering if it's like the same principle here where, you know, with the wind just moving so fast, the, you know, the water really didn't have time to catch up. The wind was overtaking it. And so those on the river really didn't have that warning from that either, as sometimes the size of the white caps can, you know, help people who are on the water determine just how quickly um, or how fast the winds are a little bit further away in the water. You can, you know, tell if you're getting these waves that are really big and have, you know, the bigger caps that there's probably, you know, a good fast wind coming in. A crew member of the boat, the Joy Park, said that um, in relation to the storm, that it, quote, bore down on us like a rushing freight train, end quote. So unlike the crew of the Robert L. Taws, other ships that or boats that were on the chop tank didn't have that time. And as a result, some of the boats capsized. Two of these were the Agnes and the Annie Lee, also the Nora Lawson. Now, the Nora Lawson was close um, to land, and when it did capsize, it was in shallow water. The men that were on board the Nora Lawson, they were able to really just stand up and walk to shore. Um, that was four people. So even though they were very cold, wet, and I'm sure very scared, they were able to get to land quickly with no assistance. Now, as the boats capsized, the apparel um, that the men would have been wearing actually worked against them. They all would have been wearing waders, so, you know, the very long high boots that are difficult to get off, um, but also very quickly can fill with water if you're thrown into the water. Those that were aboard the Agnes didn't really stand a chance, unfortunately. All five men that were aboard the ship died. At this time, it was not really common to have as many people know how to swim. So there were a number of crewmen aboard many ships that didn't know how to swim. And then if you couple that with the conditions with um, you know, being thrown overboard, most likely with waders on, they weren't able to negotiate the water 
and try to even get to their boat to use to hold on to. Um, with the river being so big, it's not that the land may have been you know just a few feet away. So it would not have been uncommon that if something like this happened, that people would have held on to the capsized boat. So at least they weren't drowning if they didn't know how to swim. So all five men on the Agnes tragically lost their lives. And that meant it not only affected them, but their families and the community together as well. Aboard the ship, the Annie Lee, there were also five men. And just a little bit behind the boat was a man named George Wheatley. He was what was called a motor tender, and he was working on the motor at the time. He was in the yawl or a push boat, which was attached to the Annie Lee. And when, you know, the winds hit, again, he didn't have time to really react. But his positioning saved his life, really. Um, as the wind, you know, took control of the Annie Lee, he was able to move into something called a skiff. And, you know, that's kind of a small, kind of shallow, flat bottom boat that was behind the main ship, the Annie Lee. Of the boat altogether, it sounds like there was the Annie Lee, the push boat, and then a skiff. They all capsized, but being in that skiff, I think, allowed George Wheatley to have a little bit more time. And even though it may have been just seconds, that was very important. As all five men were thrown into the water, they were all struggling because of, first, their waders. Miraculously, all five were able to get them off, which is just amazing to me because, you know, the water is so heavy and you know, for them to get them off underwater in very cold water um, while they were very frightened, you know, I think is amazing. They all were able to hold on to the skiff to try to stay afloat. However, one by one, they weren't able to hold on, or as George observed, there was a lot of difficulty as the men were trying to get out of the water. Another factor in this was not only that they were in water and possibly some of them didn't know how to swim, but then you add in the fact that it was so, so cold, they would have become hypothermic pretty quickly. So they were trying to get out of the water, but the boat or the skiff kept um, flipping. It kept, you know, kind of going over and under, and that was detrimental in some ways as it could kind of take people down with it. But I think, you know, more importantly is it could have actually injured those that were around the skiff um, when it turned over like that. George Wheatley actually noticed that, and whenever he saw that one of the other crew members was going to try to get on top, he would swim away a little bit, and then once they tried and weren't able to succeed, he would come back. So yes, I know that was probably taking a lot of his energy, but he was also then not running the, the risk of being hurt when that boat turned over that quickly. Also still on the water was another boat named the Geneva May. And as it also had been caught by the wind, 
it was still able to have at least a little bit of control to the point that it wasn't capsizing, but at the same time, they weren't able to really try to stop and help anybody that had been aboard one of the capsized ships. So it was going very quickly and going towards George Wheatley. Now, as they were getting closer, um, Bill Hubbard, who was the captain on the Geneva May, threw a line out to George. Um, Now, neither one of them really had control of the situation. And it was said that Hubbard, when he threw it out, told Wheatley, hold on for your life, George. If you don't, you're done for. So I think that also shows, you know, the community of people that work on the water as well. Even though he wasn't a member of Hubbard's ship, he still knew George Wheatley. And, you know, I'm just kind of thinking as well, you're seeing someone that you know out in the water like that, and you have a split second to act and pray that at least that George could get a hold of the of the rope. But once he got a hold of the rope, he would need to be able to hold on to it. And fortunately, even without having control of the boat or how the winds may have swayed the rope, George was able to catch it, and his teeth were very useful as he used his teeth to try to hold it, and then he also looped the rope around his arm, which was... You know, very resourceful because holding on to it with really cold, numbing hands, that probably would have been almost impossible. So what happened once George got a hold of the rope with the Geneva May still kind of speeding down the river? um, One person almost described George as using different terms of the time, um, but he did say planing over the water. So it sounds like George was almost hydroplaning. They were going so fast. What the men of the Geneva May did is they were able to get the rope attached to um, the wrench that's used to pull up the dredges. So, you know, just, I guess, to keep it with a maritime um, example, kind of think of the reel on a fishing rod, but a lot bigger and a lot more sturdy. So... They were able to get the rope attached to that, and they basically pulled George up like he was a dredge. And they probably got to him not a moment too soon, because when they did bring him in, his skin was described as being purple. And he passed out about as soon as he got on the ship. So I know that, you know, cold just kind of seeps all of your energy out of you. So... The fact that he was able to hold on so long and was able to have the presence of mind to get the rope wrapped around his arm, that really helped save his life by doing that. Um, Then, of course, once he was on the boat, they all tried their best they could to make him as comfortable as possible and got blankets that they had aboard the boat to try to get him warm again. The destructive forces of this storm didn't just impact the waters throughout um, some of the lower counties in Maryland and through Sussex County in Delaware, there was significant property damage. In just my hometown, there was a large window that was in the lobby of a hotel that blew out. 
as well as a chicken hatchery that had its whole roof tore off. And, you know, again, this is a, a nor'easter. It's not, say, a hurricane, but that's how destructive these nor'easters can be. Reading through also other reports of that day, there were at least six people killed in floods throughout the Hawaii, Ohio Valley. Um, one of the sources I read, which again, if you, you know, do look up some of this information, one said that there was only five, but when I went to the newspapers from 1939, one of them said six. So since that was more contemporary to the time of the storm, I think it was probably more accurate to say six, and who knows, that number may have risen. And all of this happened in what was said to be approximately 10 minutes. Searches began with boats coming in from you know, Maryland, or the other side, the western shore, I should say, um, along with some, with some police boats to try to find the remains of those that had drowned. In total, there were nine. Aboard the Agnes was Captain William Bradford, who was 77, Aaron Ennels, Rodney Jones, Herbert Robinson, and Robert Elliott. Now, the Robert Elliott is, it, it's just a little eerie in some ways. Um, my mom's sister passed away um, before I was even born, and her husband and son had been killed in a boating accident even prior to that. So I never got to meet my cousin or my uncle, but the uncle's name was Robert Elliott. So just to come across that name um, while going over this story was you know, surprising. And you know it was probably around 22 or 23 years apart from these incidents. But yeah, when I first read that, I, I had to do a double take. But the five of these men they all died while serving aboard the Agnes. Aboard the other boat, the Annie Lee, the one that George Wheatley had what was described as a miraculous recovery, Theodore Woodland, Emerson Wingate, Clem Roberts, and Samuel Brown. And George Wheatley, though, didn't let this experience, which was very early in his life, with him being around 19, he didn't let this keep him off of the water. He went back aboard the boats and was a waterman for years. He said during an interview that, you know, at the age of 19, you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but basically, you know, when you're 19, you don't think anything bad is going to happen to you. But as this happened at such a young age, you know, he really thinks that was you know, something that was good in some ways, and that he was able to overcome that. Mr. Wheatley died in 2009 at the age of 88. I do also want to just discuss something that I noticed between, you know, reading current articles and looking at the ones from 1939. While all of the men's names were given, they were separated. There were some men that were mentioned, you know, in the first part of the article, and then the article was continued to another page. And on the second page, or it was page seven of one of the newspapers, but in the second part of the ar article, the other men's names were given in the last sentence. And the reason 
why is those men were black. So just looking at the newspaper then, um, when I you know, first came across the names of one ship, um, you know, they gave the names of two people. And I'm like, I, I thought there were more people on the ship. I know there was, but yeah, then they just used the term helpers in the first part of the article. But then getting to the second part, they said these were their names and they gave the names. So that's why, too, I think it's important that we look back at events like this so that their names are not forgotten either. Reading just the first part of that article, you would only know about half of the names of those that died aboard these boats. And all of them sacrificed their lives um, for their livelihood, for their occupation. And they should not have been separated at the time. The name should not have been separated. In the more current articles, like one um, was almost, you know, not verbatim, but it was pretty close to an article that had been in the Baltimore Sun, and it was from the same newspaper. So they were both Baltimore Sun, and that had been rectified. Their names were all together as they should be, as each one of them sacrificed. So, you know, again, just, you know, looking at the difference between these, you know, not even 90 years ago, that the newspaper would actually separate the names just seems inconceivable. So I feel it did them a disservice to not have their names on the front page with the other members of the crew. The families affected overall also wouldn't have had the same resources that we have today. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was putting forward the New Deal, which was a concept or plan that would help put in more of the societal um, support, such as Social Security. So this was prior to those, um, those new regulations going into effect. So they didn't have those same resources that someone might have now to try to help them get through. So for those that died, their wives, mothers, whoever they worked um, to help provide for wouldn't have had the same support as they would today. And that's where I really hope the communities stepped up and helped provide for um, you know, the loved ones that were left behind so that you know, they wouldn't have to struggle with, at least in the immediate aftermath of this, that they wouldn't have to struggle with just fulfilling their basic needs. But you know, even with that, the family and loved ones of those that were killed would have had a very difficult time going forward. And just another time, I do want to go over the names again of those that died as they shouldn't be forgotten. They were William Bradford, Aaron Ennels, Rodney Jones, Robert Elliott, Herbert, Herbert Robinson, Theodore Woodland, Emerson Wingate, Clem Roberts, and Samuel Brown. So here is the ending for the episode itself about the Skipjack tragedy of 1939, Skipjack Sunday. Doing this episode really brought a lot of different incidents 
to my attention, you know, looking through some of the newspapers and things. So like I said earlier, some of that will be from the Western shore or other parts of the country. So that those may be on the Mystifying the Missing podcast, but you know, it, it just keeps repeating itself in some way. And the fact that the stories that happened then are still happening. And I think sometimes it's good to look back at the way things were handled years ago and compare them to how they're handled now to see if there have been any improvements in the way we do things. And if not, you know, we've had time to look at different incidents. Why have there not been changes implemented? And this is kind of across the board. So it's not just about how to regulate boating or things about true crime, but just overall. And, and it's also recognizing that with each one of these types of incidents specifically, you know, there's research done, there's, you know, experimentation to find out what we can do better. So I'm hoping that as time progressed from there, that things did get better and there were more safety measures implemented. I think there have been, but especially as the boats themselves are dying out, then what affected them the most may not be a factor at all now. But the skipjacks and the role they played in bringing families and communities a way of life should not be forgotten. So I really had an interesting time you know, researching this episode and I'm looking forward to you know doing more on some of the things that either are directly or indirectly related to these ships, the working of the different waterways throughout the area, as well as just the history overall. So I hope everybody found the information informative, and I look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye.